Hello and welcome to the Tech Disputes Network's Need to Know Basis podcast series, which offers a convenient way of getting on top of the most important new developments and cases involving issues of the technology angle via short podcasts presented by the leading experts in the field. These podcasts offer succinct summaries of the key points to note on the topics we all need to know about in a way that takes up as little of your time as possible. This podcast series is brought to you by the Tech Disputes Network, which is a London-based forum for those engaged with contentious technology issues. My name is Mike Cumming-Bruce. I'm one of the founders of the TDN, which I encourage you to join by registering at disputes.tech to receive information about our upcoming events and initiatives, which are all free of charge. This podcast is about the topical question of the legal basis on which crypto assets are held on behalf of investors by intermediaries such as exchanges. It seems like everyone is a crypto asset investor these days. The surging value of Bitcoin, increased legitimacy lent to the sector by the recommendations from established institutions, and the long hours the world has spent in front of its laptop without alternative distraction, has created a booming market for digital assets which has expanded beyond cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and led to mainstream adoption of formerly niche products like NFTs. In short, all the signs are that as and when dinner parties start becoming a thing again, there's a fairly good chance that you can expect to have your ear bent about how digital assets are the road to riches and, what's more, it might be an investment professional doing the preaching. However, it's perhaps less likely unless, of course, you are extraordinarily lucky in the dinner parties you get invited to, that discussion will move from talk of enticing returns to the somewhat less enticing legal basis on which crypto assets are held by intermediaries for investors, and, as a result, the nature of the recourse that investors may have vis-à-vis their intermediary if problems arise. This is an important question, because the majority of crypto assets are currently held via intermediaries such as exchanges, which offer investors commercial convenience while also exposing them to risks such as hacker theft. It is also a difficult question, with this being an area of the law that is in development and full of puzzling complexities. We are therefore very fortunate to welcome two such distinguished practitioners as Andrew Spink QC of Outer Temple Chambers and Hin Lui of Oxford University, to explain the key issues. Andrew is one of the country's preeminent silks, a deputy high court judge, and the co-head of Outer Temple Chambers, who are increasingly a leader in this space. Hin is a lecturer at Oxford University, the author of academic publications on the topic of this podcast, and legal consultant to Fusang, Asia's first fully licensed digital stock exchange. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Andrew Spink QC, head of the business team at Outer Temple Chambers and formerly a chair of Combar, uh, that's the Commercial Bar Association. I've been a QC for 18 years with a broad commercial and trust law-based practice, appearing as an advocate for and advising corporate and individual clients based both in the UK and internationally. Alongside that, I sit as a Deputy High Court Judge in England and also as one of the panel of justices at the Astana International Financial Center Court in Kazakhstan, which is fast establishing itself as a leading court for the resolution of civil and commercial disputes in the Eurasia region. 
I also sit as an arbitrator in international commercial disputes. And I'm Pin Liu, a lecturer of private law at the University of Oxford and a legal and business consultant at Fusan, which is Asia's first fully licensed stock exchange focused solely on digital assets and based in Malaysia. I'm also a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, working on a thesis on the legal nature of digital assets. And I'm a subgroup member of the Unidual Working Group on Digital Assets and Private Law. Without further ado, let's dive in. Now, digital assets is a very interesting and topical area. As of 2021, over $1 trillion of assets are held in digital blockchain form. And we anticipate that this number will only increase over time. I think it will be useful to start by talking about different types of blockchain or crypto assets. The paradigm example of blockchain assets would be cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ether. And we all can see the craze around these assets, for example, from the latest Bitcoin surge. But we also see other types of crypto assets getting increasingly popular, such as crypto securities, both debt and equity, and even crypto bills of lading, which would revolutionize the shipping industry. And investors are no doubt showing much more interest in crypto-based products now, even crypto art investment tokens on the blockchain, denoting fractional ownership of art pieces. And also the number of crypto exchanges has been increasing and so has the number of crypto asset trades. But inevitably, crypto investment products are only possible insofar as the underlying technology can support the issuance and trading of such assets. We, Fusang, are trying to make the most of this. We've worked on developing our technological infrastructure, and we've seen really concrete results. Our platform has supported a $3 billion blockchain bond issuance from the second largest bank in the world. And our technology reduces the layers of middlemen, such as brokers and banks in between, required to support a traditional securities issuance, so that essentially we're a one-stop shop for investors and issuers. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows. What happens then when a blockchain securities exchange goes bankrupt? What happens when someone hacks a custodian of crypto assets and takes the assets for himself or herself? What happens when an exchange decides to reverse a trade and take crypto assets out of a client account to meet a purported margin call? What does the investor get and who can she sue? Today's podcast is focused on the relationship between an individual investor and an intermediary who holds the crypto assets on the investor's behalf. This is of considerable practical significance because the vast majority of crypto assets are held by intermediaries, but we do not know with any reasonable certainty the basis on which these assets are being held. Hin and I consider that there are four realistically possible legal categorizations of an individual investor's relationship with an intermediary who holds or invests assets for them. One, outright title transfer. Two, trust. Three, bailment. Four, mere contractual obligation. Of course, the contractual documentation between the investor and the intermediary will be of significant importance when determining what their relationship is. But the legal categorizations we have identified are what we consider to be the potential default starting points when seeking to analyze the intermediary's obligations in relation to the crypto assets it holds on behalf of investors. We're going to give a brief outline of what each of these would be likely to entail before narrowing the options and having a short debate over the two most likely contenders. So, Hin, do you want to outline what we mean by outright title transfer? Of course. The first type of legal relationship which could be said to exist between investor and intermediary is that of outright title transfer, where legal title is vested absolutely in the intermediary. 
The effect of an outright title transfer is that the intermediary can freely dispose of the assets it holds. It's the absolute owner and is not under a duty to use the asset for the benefit of the investor. This has consequences in terms of insolvency and tax treatment. If the intermediary goes insolvent, the investor wouldn't have any entitlement to the asset. In relation to tax, it's the intermediary who will be subject to the applicable tax regime, meaning that, for example, capital gains tax would not be levied upon the investor, but on the intermediary. Now, how do we decide whether something is an outright title transfer? The answer is we look to the intention of the parties as discerned from the investor intermediary agreement. If we find an intention that full legal and beneficial title will be transferred to the intermediary, then title to the asset will vest in the intermediary as long as the relevant formalities for transfer are complied with, depending on the type of property. For example, shares, which might have formality requirements for transfer. And also, if there is an outright title transfer, the asset would be expected to show up on the intermediary's balance sheet. The fact that it shows up on the intermediary's balance sheet is a strong indicator of intent to transfer title, as the intermediary is treating the asset as its own. Nonetheless, although in principle the intermediary can freely dispose of the asset, this is just a default position, and there would most certainly be contractual obligations owed by the intermediary under the relevant custody agreement, and an investor would have personal rights against the intermediary under that agreement. Okay, moving now on to the second option. Apart from holding the asset absolutely, the intermediary could hold the asset on trust for the investor. For this to be the case, legal title would have to be with the trustee, i.e. the intermediary here, and the three certainties for creating a trust need to be satisfied. As we know, the three certainties are certainty of intention, subject matter and object, i.e. one, intention to create a trust, two, the property held on trust must be certain enough, and three, the beneficiaries of the trust must be certain enough. In this context, the crucial task is to determine whether an intention to create a trust can be ascertained from the agreement. That's the certainty of intention. The other two requirements are not terribly controversial here. The object of the trust is the investor, and the subject matter of the trust is whatever crypto assets are in the trust fund from time to time. It is relatively uncontroversial that a trust can exist over a fluctuating pool of assets. See, for example, the Privy Council decision in the well-known case of Ray Gold Corp Exchange, 1995, one appeal cases 74. And the general flow of the case law in the common law world is that crypto assets are likely to constitute property. Turning then to certainty of intention to create a trust, what must be intended, at least as a starting point, is for the intermediary not to have free use of the asset. One important but not determinative indicator of such an intention is that the asset is segregated from the intermediary's general assets. This tends to indicate that the segregated assets are not to be at the free disposal of the intermediary. Another very important indicator of such an intention is whether the asset is held on the intermediary's balance sheet. If the crypto asset is being held on trust for the investor, it would not be held on the intermediary's balance sheet. And we see this in the recent New Zealand Cryptopia case. In that case, a crucial factor pointing in favour of a trust was that the intermediary, and I quote, did not assert any ownership in the cryptocurrency in its internal financial accounts. The reason why this is important is because it shows that the intermediary didn't treat the assets as their own. So what are the consequences of a trust being created? First, where the intermediary goes insolvent, 
its creditors would not be able to access the assets being held on trust. And most crucially, the investor would be able to obtain the assets on such insolvency. This provides a very strong form of protection to the investor in contrast with the position under outright title transfer, where firstly, the trustee's creditors have full recourse to the assets being transferred. And secondly, the investor has no proprietary entitlement to the asset. Secondly, a trust relationship imposes a default set of fiduciary obligations on the trustee. The trustee is obliged to use the asset for the best interests of the beneficiary, meaning that it cannot put itself into a position of conflict of interest or use the asset to make a personal profit. Also, if the trust is a bare trust, as was the case in Cryptopia, the trustee would be obliged to act upon the beneficiary's instructions. Okay, so we've dealt with outright title transfer and trusts. The third relationship which could exist between the investor and the intermediary could be one of bailment. A bailment relationship arises where there is one, a voluntary transfer of possession of an asset, with two, the consent of the transferee. In this context, possession of the crypto asset is required to be transferred to the intermediary. However, legal ownership of the asset always remains with the bailor, which is an important practical distinction with a trust relationship where the trustee gets legal title. In relation to consent, the intermediary needs to consent to A, the presence of goods in the intermediary's possession, and B, the identity of the person claiming to be the bailor. If a bailment relationship is uh, created, this uh, imposes a duty on the bailee to take reasonable care of the goods, which is essentially the negligent standard of care. The bailee, or intermediary, also has title to sue third parties in tort for interference, such as in conversion and trespass, because it has possession. And to that extent, the intermediary has proprietary rights good against the world. The bailment would arise by contract, i.e. the investor intermediary agreement, and therefore the terms of the contract would govern the bailment relationship. There is an obvious issue with, with creating a traditional bailment relationship between an investor and intermediary of crypto assets. Under the current law, it is impossible to create a bailment of an intangible asset, which includes crypto assets. Whether the Law Commission recommends a change or modernization in the law of possession in the context of crypto assets is something which it will be considering closely in its project on crypto assets, which is in its pre-consultation stage. Professor Sarah Green, who is the Law Commissioner leading that project, has previously argued, along with Fadisha Snag, that a crypto asset can in principle be possessed in the context of crypto securities. And this is on the basis that as such assets are concrete objects. Green and Snag distinguish concrete objects from abstract objects, such as pure contractual rights. It is said that abstract objects only exist because of a relationship between individuals, e.g. with a debt, there is a relationship between the creditor and debtor. In contrast, crypto assets are permanently on the blockchain, and their existence doesn't depend on any relationship between individuals, just like the continued existence of a computer or table or cup doesn't depend on any individuals. And to state the obvious, they are transferable, as well as excludable by way of the private key. On that basis, Green and Snag argue that a crypto asset can be possessed. This might provide some indication as to where the Law Commission might be going with this project, which would open up the possibility of bailment. But this is just one possible analysis, 
And we think that many jurisdictions are likely to stick to the view that bailments are impossible in relation to intangible assets. So the term quasi-bailment may be more appropriate to reflect the fact that the principles relating to possession are applied only by analogy with physical, tangible assets. There is a further problem, which is shared possession. Would a quasi-bailment arise? Under English law, there wouldn't be a bailment because what is required under the authorities is a transfer of exclusive possession. So in a case where the private key is known by the investor or is known by both the investor and the intermediary, there is no exclusive possession by the intermediary and therefore no bailment relationship. We now move on to the final possible legal categorization, which is that the legal relationship between the investor and intermediary will only sound in contract. The contractual obligations will be set out in the investor-intermediary agreement, and there will also be implied terms, most importantly, the implied term of care and skill when performing a service, in this case, the custody of crypto assets. There might also be duties in tort, such as a duty of care, which runs concurrently with the implied term of care and skill. The distinctive feature about this final possibility is that the arrangement doesn't have any proprietary effect. The obligations are solely in contract. Now, before coming on to debate the two strongest contenders of these four possibilities, I want to briefly recap the decision of the New Zealand High Court in Cryptopia, which has allotted useful dicta on the nature of crypto assets and possible legal relationships that arise with crypto assets. So the basic story in Cryptopia is this. A cryptocurrency exchange was hacked and millions of dollars of crypto assets were stolen. This bankrupted the exchange and there were competing claims from the investors of the exchange on the one hand and the general creditors of the exchange on the other hand. Essentially, the investors argued that the crypto assets were held in trust for them, which would give them priority, whereas the liquidator argued that they weren't held on trust, so that both the investors and the general creditors would share equally in the liquidation. In a fascinating decision by the New Zealand High Court, they held that the cryptocurrencies were held on trust. Before we get to the trust issue though, it's useful to remind ourselves of the distinction between information or pure information and property. Pure information may be a fact about the world, such as Andrew loves crypto assets. And if I tell you this fact, I transmitted this information to you. But the crucial thing is, I still have this information. What's different about cryptocurrencies is that when I transfer my Bitcoin to you, I no longer have my Bitcoin. In other words, the breakthrough of cryptocurrencies is that they can only be spent once. After analyzing a slew of cases and discussing the information debate, the court held that cryptocurrencies can be considered as property and also that they are capable of being held on trust. The court then applied this to the facts of the case. It sought to determine the legal relationship by interpreting Cryptopia's user agreement and held that on its proper construction, the agreement gave rise to a trust. Specifically, the exchange held the cryptocurrencies on bare trust for the client based on a variety of factors, including those mentioned by Andrew earlier on. A trust provides the investor with good protection. For example, as I mentioned, a trust beneficiary has powerful remedies against the trustee and third parties. Now, these are fascinating issues, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other legal issues relating to crypto assets, aside from those discussed in Cryptopia, that need to be resolved by the courts. For example, what is the legal nature of crypto assets that are linked to an external real-world asset, for example, a blockchain bond listed on a crypto exchange? Bitcoin is a native blockchain asset. It exists 
solely on the blockchain. There's no external reference asset. So Bitcoin as an asset exists only on the blockchain ledger. But for a blockchain bond, the blockchain entry or asset is referable to an asset external to the blockchain, specifically the debt. So what is the legal nature of these assets? There are two possibilities. First, they could be seen as the same as any normal debt or share. The blockchain ledger is just a piece of information denoting the investor's entitlement to the debt or share. Second, they can be seen as similar to a documentary intangible, such as a check or bearer security. Here, there will be two items of property, the blockchain asset itself, by analogy with Bitcoin or Ether, and the underlying debt or share. This is similar to a bearer security, where there is the piece of paper as well as the underlying debt or share. I explore this issue in my forthcoming piece in the Lloyd's Maritime and Commercial Law Quarterly. And there are other potential issues specifically in the crypto exchange context. For example, where the putative trustee is given a very extensive right of use, when does that shade into an outright title transfer? We know that from the Lehman case, a right of use is still consistent with a trust in the context of traditional securities. Are the principles any different here in the crypto asset context? Professor Louise Gulliver and I are exploring this issue in a paper that we're working on. Thanks very much for that synopsis, Hin. Uh, Hin and I are now going to have a mini debate about which legal relationship our courts are most likely to adopt as the default starting point as regards an intermediary's obligations in relation to crypto assets it holds on behalf of investors. Which legal relationship is in practice going to be adopted will depend on one, what agreements are likely to be drafted, and two, the court's approach to the interpretation of contracts. We are going to focus on the two most likely possibilities as we see them, namely trust and quasi-bailment. We say they are the most likely possibilities because client intermediary agreements in the crypto asset context tend to be drafted in the form of give us the asset and we will hold it on your behalf. Outright title transfer is unlikely because the intermediary holds the asset on behalf of the investor. Similarly, mere contractual obligation is unlikely since the legal title and or quasi-possession will most likely be with the intermediary. Obviously, in a particular case, the legal characterization of the relationship between the investor and intermediary will turn on the inter interpretation of the client intermediary agreement itself. However, in my view, the most likely default relationship between an investor and an intermediary will be one of trust. And that's the side of the debate I'm going to argue. First, the trust is a ready-made structure which can provide immediate commercial certainty to commercial actors. English trust law has centuries of case law, which has developed a concept which has relatively well-defined boundaries, yet is extremely flexible and can be tailored to almost any commercial situation. In particular, the duties of the trustee can be heavily modified and adapted to suit the individual context and preferences of the trustee and beneficiary. We see this in Citibank v MBIA, 2007 EWCA Civil 211, uh, a case in which a trust was upheld in seemingly extraordinary circumstances. The trustee contained considerable exclusions of duties that cut through what is traditionally thought of as the irreducible core of trusteeship, e.g. the trustee was bound by the instructions of a third party. And when instructed by the third party, the trustee did not need to have regard to the interests of the beneficiaries when acting. This effectively nullified the duty to act in good faith in the beneficiary's interests. 
Despite all of this, the court still held that a trust existed. Apart from excluding duties, the agreement can augment the rights of a trustee such that he can behave more like an absolute owner. As long as his rights aren't too much like those of an absolute owner, he can still be a trustee. So, in Pearson v Lehman, it was held that even a right of use given to the trustee could be consistent with a trust. Yes, but Andrew, there is of course a limit. If too many duties are excluded, or if too many rights are given to the trustee, the arrangement might not end up being a trust at all. There would instead be a title transfer. For example, if there is a right of use given to the putative trustee and the profits derived from the use of the assets are to belong exclusively to the trustee, there would most probably be a title transfer. To take Lord Templeman's famous example, even if you call a spade a fork, the court will still hold it to be a spade. In this case, the fork would be the trust and the spade would be the title transfer. The court would recharacterize the trust as a title transfer, just as it would hypothetically recharacterize the fork as a spade. So the court has wide powers to recharacterize the transaction and in spades as well. In my view, quasi-bailment also offers commercial flexibility. And why not provide parties with the maximum number of legal options so that they can devise an arrangement that matches their intended level of risk allocation as far as possible? Further, the investor in a bailment can sue third parties for interference, for example, in conversion or reversionary injury, because he or she has a legal title and or a right to immediate possession. And these causes of action give the investor greater control over the asset. Contrast the trust, where the general principle is that the beneficiary cannot sue third parties for interference with the trust asset. I tend to agree with your first point, Hin, that commercial flexibility should be welcomed to, to permit parties to choose the legal arrangement that best suits their needs. But that is not an argument, in my view itself, for why bailment is a more desirable legal structure in this context than a trust. As the law currently stands, bailment is not an option because crypto assets cannot be possessed as they are intangible. To extend the concept of bailment to cover crypto assets will require the development of quasi-bailment, which requires a new conceptual structure to be created. Difficult issues in determining whether the torts of conversion and trespass apply to intangible assets would also have to be addressed. Such difficult developments would not be required for the trust and courts can immediately focus on the substance of the dispute. There are also difficult questions around how crypto assets are transferred and how the creation and destruction of informational entities instead of the movement of the same asset from place to place, could work in the context of bailment. And further questions about the mingling of different investors' assets by the intermediary and whether a bailment can exist there too. At this point, it is therefore theoretical to talk about quasi-bailment as an option because there are fundamental conceptual hurdles to overcome. In my view, parties are more likely to be taken to have intended to enter into an arrangement that will provide more as opposed to less commercial certainty. This is one reason why a court may be more likely to prefer construing a relationship as one involving a trust than as a form of bailment that does not yet exist. However, as to the second point about bailers being permitted to sue third parties for interference with their assets, such a procedure does exist in the trust context. This is the Vanderpitt procedure, which allows a beneficiary to join the trustee and sue third-party wrongdoers, such as individuals who have converted the trustee's property. This is really interesting. 
I want to make a practical point about all of this though. Certain crypto asset custodians don't want to fall under the regulatory remit. And so they wouldn't want to say that they're trustees. And these custodians also wouldn't want to assume full-blown trust obligations. This means that many agreements are totally silent about the legal relationship, and I've seen quite a few. As a consequence, it's often difficult to find the requisite certainty of intention to create a trust. So this phenomenon actually points away from a trust. But I do have to say, Andrew, that personally, I probably do think the trust is the best legal structure for investors and intermediaries of crypto assets. You've already mentioned how the duties of trustees can be reduced or expanded as preferred in individual cases. And contrary to what I just said, it probably can be assumed that two parties acting in good faith will intend for their legal arrangement to fall within the regulatory remit and comply with regulatory requirements in order to signal their legitimacy to investors. Many regulators require professional trustees to be regulated, as is the case for Hong Kong, Singapore, the BVI, Malaysia, and the Cayman Islands, which are the major jurisdictions in which digital asset intermediaries are based outside of the US. So it seems like we would expect most crypto asset custodians to be holding assets on trust for investors on their platform. And finally, other features of a bailment relationship can be replicated by a trust as well. The Bailey's duty to take reasonable care of the asset in its custody and to not intentionally damage or destroy the property has an equivalent in the trust context, the duty to act in good faith in the beneficiary's interest, which would obviously include a duty not to intentionally or negligently damage or destroy the property. Although the law is unclear as to whether a Bailey can have a right of use or rehypothecation in relation to the property, this feature can be replicated through a trust as a trustee can have a right of use in relation to trust property. Yes, Hin, the question must be asked as to whether the development of an entirely new concept of quasi-bailment is worth it if it is not actually necessary, particularly as parties would have to take a risk before a court to convince it to develop such a concept or wait for the Law Commission to recommend new legislation to similar effect. Given that the trust has evolved over centuries into such a dynamic and flexible tool, if the trust is flexible enough to practically achieve everything quasi-bailment can achieve, then it's difficult to see why such a significant modification to the existing law of bailment would be necessary. I do see the merit in such modifications. They're going to give parties a greater number of choices regarding their relationships. But that's evidently going to take some time for bailment. And the general trend of the case law in the common law world shows that the natural relationship between intermediaries and investors is most likely one of trust as we've seen in Singapore and COIN, as well as New Zealand in Cryptopia. These issues are really fascinating, and Hin and I have discussed them at great length in the past few weeks. But in view of the time, we'll have to leave it there for now. If you do have any questions or would like to discuss any of the issues we've raised today, please don't hesitate to get in touch with Hin or with me. Thanks for tuning in with me, Andrew Spink. And me, Hin Liu.